Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything smart cities, action, investment, and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck, your host. I'm also Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council here in Australia and New Zealand region. Uh, episode 61, uh, episode 61 today, uh, and my uh, guest and the topic of today's conversation, uh, very relevant for the global circumstances playing out right now. Uh, but joining me um, to talk about all things uh, resilience is Kieran Power, uh, National Lead for Resilience and Climate Adaptations at our partner company, WSP. Kieran, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Adam. Um, Kieran, before we jump in, uh, I'd like to uh, give our guests the opportunity of introducing themselves. So I'll, I'll start with the first question. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. So as, as you mentioned, I am WSP's national lead for uh, resilience and climate change. And um, by way of background on WSP, it's a large design advisory and engineering firm, about 50,000 people globally and about 5,000 in Australia. And really my role is to bring together our various offerings that relate in some way to climate change. Um, so that could be from in terms of adapting infrastructure and the projects that we deliver to to a changing climate to future climate projections through to work around the, the net zero transition um, and then through to really tactical stuff as well like um, you know some of some of those of our our team members who really work on on quite tactical business continuity planning and then there's the broader piece I guess around resilience in, in its broader sense um, working with with some of those um, IFI-led and and, um, and philanthropic-led programs around around resilience planning at a very strategic level, and just recently arrived back from a stint doing that in the UK um, with you know some um, yeah, World Bank programs and and uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development programs and 100 Resilient Cities, which I think is where we met one another, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. That was a number of uh, number of years ago. I, I do remember that and. Um, uh, sort of haven't things changed and I mean change change not only in sort of the last five years since we hung out together but just change in the last sort of 24 48 hours and so on I mean it's it's quite um uh it's quite an extraordinary moment in time uh right now isn't it and, and of course I'm referring to the COVID-19 pan pandemic what um what, what's going through, through your, your mind as a sort of a resilience practitioner and advisor at the moment yeah, sure. I think we'll, I'm linking it through to um, sort of data and, and smart cities and insights. I think there's going to be a, a pretty amazing wealth of, of insights that are going to come out of, of, of this period as we really are kind of tracking into something that's, that's reasonably uncharted. I think we're all kind of revealing our preferences in ways that we, we didn't really understand previously. So I think you can kind of see that superficially in our supermarkets at the moment. You know, you're getting a very good read on on you know the things that people truly value versus those that they don't so um you know heading through um heading through the supermarket yesterday it's pretty clear that people feel very very passionately about toilet rolls um whereas uh you know uh, walking through the shops there was no shortage of wholemeal pasta which which suggests to me that um <laughs> you know that those two things probably actually related adam in a way but um mm. but uh but yeah i think you know with the power of, of some sort of smart um, insights, you know, urban analytics tools, there's probably going to be some pretty fascinating things that, that we'll find out that really 
um, give us some some pretty good insights, I guess, on the human side to resilience, and and that's a real real area of of um, passion and interest of mine. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a um, it's such an interesting one at um, so many different levels. I mean, at, at that real you know human scale, relationship scale, um, you know th- those with um, with elderly friends and family, but but equally you know, young children and school and childcare um, to those that have got, um, you know, fr- friends abroad. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'm kind of not finding anything at the moment that isn't in some way um, touching on, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic um, and, and, and something that's really heightening people's sort of senses at the moment. I've got a, uh, my eldest daughter has, uh, has just, sort of you know one week into her first year of university and um you know she's hearing from other friends that you know campuses are shutting down and things are going online and that's all that everyone's talking about regardless of age or uh or sort of sector yeah look look i think that's that's right and it's um obviously far too early to tell how how much some of the the work that's been being done in in the resilience space over the last few years has has really sort of cutting through to to help kind of manage these these genuinely system wide kind of challenges that we face. But you know you kind of see little little glimmers of hope that maybe some of that has has cut through. If you sort of I noticed today that Woolworths, the the supermarket chain here in Australia, in, in announcing elderly only shopping hours to uh, mm. kind of take account of of that particularly vulnerable um, segment of the community, and that's certainly something that. I think the resilience movement has been pushing for a long time is really that um, primacy, that elevated consideration of those among us who are most vulnerable. And that's certainly been um, a big focus and I think has carried through in the way that in Australia we've thought about heat waves and maybe that people have responded to the recent bushfires and and maybe just maybe it's carrying through into how we approach this as well. Yeah, it's interesting, um, isn't it? Because... Uh, that's right. That the the precursor to this was was our um, terrible bushfire season, which which created a, a significant amount of damage in in many geographic parts of the of the nation. Um, it, it's um, re- resilience is just an interesting one, isn't it? Because I I my view has been in the past that that often when when one sort of talks of or speaks to the idea of resilience nine times out of 10, it kind of musters up these ideas of, you know, climate resilience and natural disasters, you know, cyclones and flooding and bushfires and things like that. Um, but this pandemic uh, is, is certainly uh, reinforcing and confirming that, you know, this, this idea of resilience is one that can span sort of shocks and stresses that are both, you know, from, from climate related, uh, circumstances, you know, health, uh, you know, dare I say it, you know, other shocks and stresses also are picked up in the resilience idea, you know, uh, technology impacts, you know, terrorism impacts and things like that. It, it, it is a, it is a, um, it, it's a very broad church of issues that resilience encapsulates, doesn't it? Yeah, look, absolutely it is. And in one way, I think that's um, been, a, been a great value out of maybe the way the space has, 
has evolved over recent years. I mean, you know, you need to be very careful when we speak about resilience in terms of not, I guess, giving the sense that if it is anything new. I mean, if you look at our, our bushfires, for example, you know, thinking through resilience, through from kind of prevention through to preparedness and response and recovery, you know, we've had emergency agencies and first responders in this country doing doing an amazing job in responding to these things for you know far far longer than you and I have been been working in the space and every time kind of learning and evolving but I think you know what's kind of happened of late is a shift towards trying to think about those interventions that can be taken to build our resilience to disruptions that are not necessarily you know that you hear people say the term hazard agnostic but you know those sorts of interventions that are beneficial, you know, even even for in good times, and are likely to add resilience to be it our supply chains. Using the current example of of COVID nineteen, regardless of whether or not it's a pandemic or a bushfire or, or whatever it might be that that's causing that disruption. And you know, I think that's been really beneficial as a kind of framing tool. And I think it probably has led to some 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 broader thinking that that may well you know be shown to have, have been quite beneficial in, in the wash up of this COVID-19 pandemic however it also does come with the 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 downside of as you say Adam making the it's such a broad church that it, it's hard for people to sink their teeth into and indeed very very hard to actually kind of measure the additionality of of actions that are taken in the space because all of a sudden if, if you've opened things up to anything and everything then equally um, measuring your impact becomes exceptionally hard. Yeah. I, um, I, I kind of reflect on not just what's happening now, but the, the bushfires over the summer season, you know, they were, um, that they were horrific. Now, you know, we, we've had some, some very recent um, strategic and comprehensive resiliency planning and strategy work going on. And I refer to, you know, two, uh, you know, two cases in particular, of course, linked to the hundred Rockefeller program being uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and, and I know you were close to the Melbourne one, um, you know, so, so here we have, and, you know, I was a spectator on the sideline, you know, watching and hearing, um, those sort of, you know, multi-year strategic community engagement uh, processes that, that, that played out, strategies created, chief resilience officers in place and, and, and resourced up. Um, I, I sort of, I ask myself, you know, based on what's going on now, based on the huge impact the bushfires had, it kind of is is it not the case that you know whilst the best strategy may be in place sometimes we just do get so overwhelmed that regardless of our level of resiliency you know we we we're just sort of um consumed by the impact at that moment in time i mean i i couldn't imagine or my i mean this is just my view and of course this is where I, where i what I'm interested in your views are, but um, I couldn't imagine any resiliency plan having kind of any sense that this COVID-19 impact was going to play out at some point in the near future. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think you are right, Adam. You know, it, there there is a degree to which, uh, when when something like this this strikes, there's there's all sorts of things that are exceptionally hard to foresee, um, and I don't think it was really ever the intent of a resilient Melbourne or resilient Sydney strategy to really try and profoundly influence and ultimately you would have to ask the chief resilience officers themselves on this but to profoundly influence the way we respond in an acute phase like this um, I think it has more always been around looking at the sorts of interventions that can be taken um, in good times that kind of mm. set us up better to to withstand these periods of shock so that, I think that's why a lot of the interventions that you see in those 100 resilient cities strategies very few of them ended up being infrastructural mm. very few of them ended up being emergency management kind of related initiatives a, a lot of them were about community development though mm. and again going back to my earlier point it's exceptionally hard to demonstrate you know absolutely uh definitively the impact those have had but i mean if, if you look at um, you know, resilient Melbourne as an example. I know that since since the strategy is released, they've trained trained hundreds of professionals um, in Victoria, particularly in local governments, around this kind of broader framing of resilience planning, and you know have managed to um, release the the Living Melbourne strategy, which is basically a um, the state's first ever kind of coordinated metropolitan wide approach to improving tree canopy cover to uh to help reduce vulnerability in in times of heat wave um so you know all great things but maybe not necessarily things that people were expecting to see in those strategies at the outset and and i guess just on that point you made around sort of being able to foresee these things it's interesting you say that and just having doing a bit of prep for this discussion uh last night i thought i'd go back and look at victoria so the state of victoria's um, annual emergency risks assessment and then uh, if you look at their uh, their risk assessment the section on what they call pan pandemic influenza which which isn't quite what we're facing right now but very similar it's pretty prescient in terms of what they say you know could happen and kind of roughly how it might play out so mm. the foresight's there but in terms of what you actually um, the actions that you take you know best laid plans and all of that it's, it's ultimately going to be quite fluid particularly when you've got these kind of human dynamics, for example, we, and that's probably where we kind of lack, you know, perfect insight in these sorts of situations is around how people will actually respond. Mm. I, um, uh, I, I want to go back and touch on, well, leverage from, you know, your reference there around um, Melbourne. Uh, and the reason I want to do that is um, the, the city of Melbourne, you know, for a long time has, uh, has been seen as a, a local government leader in a number of areas. Um, you know, as you rightly pointed out, they've they've been part of the the, the resilience uh, work uh, under that global uh, 100 Resilient Cities program uh, by the Rockefeller Foundation. You know, they've also been you know the world's most livable city for many years, and of of late, they've certainly. Uh, racked up a number of accolades in the area of of, of smart cities. So, um, I, I I use them um, not in any detailed way, but for purposes of our discussion, you know, I, I want to 
I want to kind of explore with you um, where, where these somewhat separate agendas at times might bump up against each other, not in a bad way, but where might we be able to find sort of some of those alignments and synergies uh, across, you know, the, the resilience agenda um, and the smart cities agenda. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm a very passionate advocate for this idea of breaking down silos and, 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 you know, common horizontal issues, uh, helping, helping us all move forward. Um, but even my own, uh, you know, knowledge uh, development and, and training when I look back on it now has always kind of been a little bit compartmentalized. Um, mm. let, let's explore this idea of, of, smart cities and resilience kind of hanging out together. Um, and it, and it's one that, uh, I kind of started unpacking a little bit around about a year ago. I think it was a year or 18 months ago. We ran, uh, a joint forum in Sydney. I think it was, it was the smart cities council, the internet of things Alliance and green cross Australia, um, who, are uh, very much focused around, um, climate adaptation and, and resilience. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had uh, probably what you'd expect to be, you know, the, 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 the conversation and, and, and panel of people that you would expect. We had, you know, Beck Dawson, the CRO from city of Sydney there. We had a, an IOT provider who was sharing their views around the latest, um, sensing technology with respect to, uh, I think it was like, um, uh, you know, d depth sensing. So, you know, you put sensors under the bridge and it'll tell you when it's rising, you know, so hopefully you can get some real time data on the flood that's coming before it actually happens. I think we had a couple of, of sort of conversations around sensing of, of heat and smoke and having, sensors deployed in rural and regional areas and, and national parks, you know, so hopefully we sense the bushfire coming before it gets out of control. So kind of, you know, some fundamentals there around sensing and, and the internet of things. Um, and it was a great conversation and it was like, yeah, you know, that's great. We can sense these things. Um, I have wondered, you know, for over a year now, is there something deeper there in terms of, the smart cities agenda being, you know, a, a really close companion to the resiliency agenda. So I, I'd like to unpack that a little bit, but for, for our listeners, can I, can I get you to kick off Kieran? Um, our, we think our primary audience with this podcast is, is generally government entities who are interested in smart cities and technology and data can you give us a bit of a refresh around sort of some core principles around resilience and then what we might try and do is sort of play out where we think tech and data intersects with sort of resiliency. Cause I think resiliency uh, is, is kind of like the, the outcome uh, the smart cities definition and premise, at least from our perspective is tech and data for good or for some mm. outcome. So in my mind, the outcome is resilience technology and data is is then uh, a supporting enabler to building greater resilience so if we use resilience as the blueprint and the lens what, what are sort of some of those fundamental principles that we break down to start the conversation yeah sure and look i'm, I'm pleased to hear you frame it that way adam around around out 
around outcomes. So, you know, I don't think it's, I've said this to you before that, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the reservations that you might find um, amongst people kind of working as, as what they, they might call themselves resilience practitioners around, around the smart agenda is that, you know, potentially the more cynical view is that, is it, is it just a means of, of selling tech? Uh-huh. And the question kind of is to, to what end, you mm-hmm. know? So, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I know that absolutely the work of the Smart Cities Council is trying to kind of, um, to try to push out of that. I can just looking at the screen that, that we're using to speak at the moment and it says livability, workability, sustainability underneath your logo. And I know that's the three core values of the council. So, yes, there's absolutely no reason why the two uh, movements or the two, two framings of this, of this um, you know, desire to improve cities and, and their, um, the livability for their, for their occupants shouldn't, shouldn't be complementary. Um, going, going back to, I guess, your original question, I mean, in terms of resilience, I, I don't think there are many better definitions than the 100 resilient cities framing of, of resilience, which goes along the lines of um, to ensure that systems, in their case, talking about cities, but realistically, it could be anything can adapt, survive and thrive, no matter what chronic stresses and acute shocks they encounter. So chronic stresses being the more systemic, slow moving phenomena, um, you know, such as our kind of demographic changes, the shocks being our bushfires, our pandemics, et cetera. And I mean, the, the thing that I'm always encouraging our clients and really anybody I talk to about resilience to, to come back to is, is a question that I know a lot of a lot of my colleagues also use, which is resilience to what, and resilience um, for what, mm-hmm. and also resilience of of whom, you know. And mm. I think by asking those framing questions, you kind of get back to, you know, what what are those outcomes we're actually looking to achieve? And then, as you say, how can tech, how can data be 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 mechanisms to achieve that? And I think for mine. Um, it's it's just about making sure we actually have that conversation around outcomes before we jump to to solutions. Yeah, I um I often refer to thank you for that. I I, I often refer to um it was 2011 the 2011 floods in Brisbane, city of Brisbane 2011, um, rain upstream in the catchment like. We kind of, you know, it was one of those 100, one in 100 year events. And we had three of them in the span of 12 months. Um, so the, the, the first wave of those floods that came through, um, you know, really brought Brisbane to its knees. You know, the Brisbane River just swelled under blue skies and, and uh, you know, a, a a sun that was blaring down mm. on us because it was the result of what was released out of the dam further upstream. And it just took time to get here and then the rain had passed, but nonetheless, the city kind of um, uh, was inundated. There was some, um, th- there was some interesting post event research and analysis done by, I think it was Queensland university of technology around the role of social media and the role that social media played in helping kind of communities bounce back, they were saying um, the Facebook, uh, the Facebook pages that went up and allowed people to sort of, you know, bake, uh, you know, cakes and 
you know, cook a casserole for those that had lost everything in the house and sort of social media, you know, being technology and data that, you know, comes together to sort of result in what, you know, Facebook is, you know, it was, it was a bit of an enabler for the community coming together at a time in which communications were, were sort of challenged at some point. And what I, what I loved, you know, regardless of what people, you know, think or don't think about Facebook, you know, what I loved with that case study was this sort of, um, you've got a natural disaster, you've, you've got some, you've got a technology and data platform over here. And then at the end of the day, what was happening was people coming together and relationships being built and, you know, just, you know, the, the, the spirit of community, you know, really kind of came to the fore. Um, of course, none of it really planned, right? It was just the, the entrepreneurship and the, in, the ingenuity and just the, the compassion that community members had for others in helping them. But it, it kind of linked these disparate agendas together, you know, which was sort of, you know, human centered sort of living and technology and data and, you know, natural catastrophes. It was, it was quite phenomenal. And I like that mm. case study because, um, you know, what we then saw, I think it was within a year after the Brisbane 2011 floods, it happened in Calgary again. And then that became another case study for sort of technology and data helping the community. So, you know, we, we, we've seen instances where tech and data has kind of played an absolute fundamental role in communities bouncing back. But I, I don't necessarily know whether it's, it's, a, it's a considered comprehensive uh, plank within our day-to-day resiliency conversations. Would, would you agree or disagree or have views on that? Well, do you, do you think it needs to be, Adam? Um, well, in the sense <laughs> that, you know, that happened organically and yeah. um, it had a lot of benefits. And, you know, I guess we, we've seen uh, many, many examples before, I guess, of where government or policy can kind of start to meddle in things that, that are actually just inherently good and are already happening. Yeah. So um, and in, in that example there, I mean, if the most recent bushfires, I... Um, a couple of weeks after they'd kind of reached their peak, um, I, I asked my wife, what, why do we have a parcel from Eden in New South Wales down on the south southern coast where one of the most uh, heavily affected areas by the bushfires? And she said, oh, well, I, I you know, found this thing on Instagram that, that was kind of all about um, buying, buying locally in here to mm. try and help these communities keep... Uh, uh, you know, with, you know, get through this, this time of shock. And she'd gone and bought stuff that, yes, she probably could have gotten... Um, down the shops locally, but she, mm. she had it mailed here, and you can you can talk about the uh, the sustainability uh, pros and cons of that, I guess. But um, ultimately, that's something that happened organically, and I mm. think probably there is a role for um, a more considered, um, or at least greater awareness of that potential amongst those that are kind of doing resilience planning. But in many ways, a bit like a lot of things to do with tech and data, it kind of it moves on. It moves on whether or not we we set up a framework for it or not. Mm. Mm. I um, <laughs> yeah, some <laughs> so, some of the best things that occur were just unplanned, weren't they? I mm. it's um, it, it's a hard one. Is there um, let me talk about data for a moment. Um, and uh, the the COVID nineteen um, uh, pandemic. There's, there's been a couple of websites that uh, are certainly 
sort of on the screen in many workplaces being, you know, that the, the global, the global maps showing where the hotspots are, the big red, red dots, mm. the, the, the sort of the, the, the real time ranking of, you know, how many cases and country by country, city by city. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of data nerds and data enthusiasts, you know, in the background at the moment going, oh my God, you know, data is now sort of part of, you know, every, every, every day sort of appreciation now, mm. you know, they never, they never listened to us or they never wanted to, wanted to use our GIS, you know, way back. Um, but, you know, it, it's, um, I, I'm just wondering whether, um, as you said in the introduction, you know, the, the sort of the data that we're going to be able to capture from what's going on now, you know, who knows what the power that's going to be. Um, but just more broadly with, res with, with resilience, um, uh, I mean, you, you, I mean, you've been in this space for, you know, over a decade now, how have you found the likes of, um, you know, data, you know, geographic mapping and things like that for, for sort of, you know, environmental kind of elements, but how have you seen data change in terms of the types of data, how it's collected and how it's used in building greater resilience are there any sort of notable uh, sort of points that you'd make on the data side of things oh look i mean i think it's it's advancing rapidly now and and at a rate you know a rate and ways that are, that are beyond my my reckoning i mean i i have an environmental science and a social science background that the data stuff i am uh, an advocate for and 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 very much um, yeah, a supporter of, but um, sometimes, in all honesty, it, it goes all a bit over my head. But I think we do now have, you know, at a very, um, you know, there there are now many more examples of where I see um, innovative ways of gathering and then presenting data being um, used to support and advance resilience outcomes. And I guess going back to the the hundred RC program that the city that I think's done a really good job of this in our region is Wellington and it's probably helped by the fact that they actually have um within New it's kind of that is the the epicenter of of uh, tech uh innovation what's my understanding anyway in New Zealand and as such off the back of their resilience strategy they're one of the cities that really managed to integrate kind of novel ways of of gathering data to support better resilience decision-making. So there was one really good program they did where basically they installed accelerometers in 400 of the buildings around the city in order to uh, get a better understanding of um, immediate understanding of damage and an immediate understanding of where they could best prioritize their kind of acute phase responses to shore up buildings to stop them, stop them collapsing. Um, and I think it's it's it is helpful there that they were kind of able to to see that opportunity because they they'd been thinking as a city quite deeply about about I guess the need to gather that sort of data and I think it also helped kind of going back to our earlier conversation about sort of cities and their resilience journeys that as a city they the I guess the the, the challenge is clear for them you know they earthquake they know exactly you know that this is this is an immediate challenge. This is something I need to get on with. And therefore for them, it's kind of easier to, um, to press on and go, all right, where can we, where can we best uh, get going and where can we make resilience real for us and, and have some real impacts? And, and one, one strand of that is data. I wanted to ask you about New Zealand, actually. Um, th thanks for bringing that up. I, um, I, I go there 
somewhat frequently that that's sort of part of the you know the territory and region i look after i remember being in um in in christchurch oh this would have been seven years ago now and i was presenting at a sustainable housing forum and we were in the council building which is one of the ones that survived um they built them they built them good back then um and th th there was a bit of a shake uh and you know when i say a bit of a shake you know you, you could feel it moving and the audience was predominantly council staff and uh, you know christchurch based stakeholders and there was about uh, i think there was three of us from australia and a couple from overseas that were part of this roadshow tour of events um and i was in the back row with uh, with another australian colleague and uh i mean i didn't i haven't you know moved so quickly within a nanosecond in my entire life um <laughs> yet yet every um you know every other stakeholder in the in the room didn't batter an eyelid they just they just sort of sat there and i remember chatting with someone afterwards and they said well this is life you know we 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 live with this we just life is that you know and a, a big one could come at any at any point in time and I, I just wonder what that does for your resiliency approach or state of mind when there it's it's just part of life and, and, I, and I was trying to compare it with Australia I mean is that you know, we get fire and flood, but we're a big country and you never know where it's going to hit. But they kind of just all day, every day, any day could be, you know, a disaster, really. And I just have you come across the, the difference in mindset based on context in different cities and nations and whether that changes approaches? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, I think it's a fascinating topic. And, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a behavioral scientist, so I won't sort of try and overreach in terms of unpacking the, the kind of basis for some of this stuff. But I mean, and anecdotally, I think and what you're talking about is kind of the priming effect that, um, you know, one, one exposure to a shock can really, can really have for you. And I think, you know, perhaps there's, there's no kind of more broader based um, acute shock than, than the risk of earthquake when it applies to kind of the entire landmass of a country. So I think, you know, it stands to reason that, um, people there have, have understood that this is something that they're going to have to live with. And when when working with Mike Mendonca, the CRO of um, of Wellington and, and his team there, they they do talk about not they don't talk about if they talk about when when mm. the big one will come. Mm. And you know I think that is something that is yeah particularly true of of earthquakes because yeah in the case of New Zealand it, it's it's a risk nationally, whereas it's probably not too many other nations that can. And maybe Japan potentially that that can point. Or actually, the more I think about it, with earthquakes, there are quite a few, but maybe there aren't too many other shocks that have that breadth to them. So, mm -hmm. um, if you think about you know flood risk in in the UK, where I was working until um, October last year, um, you know there's this really interesting research that the UK commissions around that stuff, all, all part of having a an independent um, committee on climate change, which I, I won't I won't get on my soapbox about here. But um, they, they commissioned some really interesting research that looks at, you know, how, how many times do you have to be flooded before you do something about it? And, yeah. and you would think intuitively the answer would be once, but it's, it's not always. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's a really, really fascinating topic. So, um, and, and, and to be brutally honest, I could, 
uh, I could talk about Wellington all day long. I, I love the work that they've done and, um, you know, their, their smart cities and innovation lead, Sean Ordain, and, and how their CRO and, and their other departments have just naturally weaved these agendas together is, is sort of somewhat beautiful, if I can say that. But um, I, I wanted to... Um, so based on what you've seen, you've been in the resilience space for a long time. Um, you know of this smart cities thing. Um, what, what are your, are you, have you been able to sort of, you know, form um, uh, any, any views uh, in your work as, a, as, a, as an advisor? Um, what, what's sort of your headspace now on, on the role of technology and data in, in, in how it can play a role in building greater resilience? What, what sort of, you know, if you're sitting down to advise these days, what, what, kind of, what kind of things come out of your mouth in terms of smart cities, resilience, uh, coming together, not coming together? Yeah, or, sure. Or, or otherwise? Yeah, so, I mean... I think going back to what we're discussing earlier, I think we need to kind of unite around shared purpose on this stuff. And I think there's, there's plenty of ways of doing that, but I guess maybe the best way of answering your, your question is that, I mean, I guess a lot of the discussions that increasingly I've been having are with clients around um, climate risk disclosure. So the task force on climate related financial disclosure disclosures, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. So this is, Basically, the, the Financial Stability Board um, starting starting a, an initiative to uh, encourage corporations globally to disclose their exposure to climate risks so that um, investors can make informed decisions. And um, as part of that, that's kind of building, picking up steam in Australia, but it's particularly strong in the UK. Um, and in fact, I think um, I've heard that they're sort of looking to make this type of corporate climate risk disclosure for publicly listed companies are uh, mandatory from 2020. And what that requires is, is a lot of work on foresight um, and actually, you know, having, having some work through some different scenarios of how the might, future might play out to try and then, I guess, map out what those impacts might be on a value chain. And I think what I would say is that where as humans, we have a tremendous number of cognitive biases that make that really, really hard. So, um, you know, most recently, I, mean, I, I review a lot of climate change risk assessments. And up until November last year, I don't think I'd seen a single one that listed on its risk register the, the risk, indirect risk of bushfire smoke in cities. Mm. Uh, now they all have it. So mm -hmm. how can data... How can you know some of the insights that um, the smart agenda um, can really dredge up and bring help improve that process of, of of really doing proper foresight and then helping to um, translate that into to organisations' decision making is is what what I think the most interesting interesting area that I that I perceive um, yeah for for kind of alignment between the two pieces of work but I guess that's quite a theoretical one. Then you know there's there's obviously dozens of other more practical applications around different technologies themselves that could be rolled out in cities to support resilience. Again, provided we've thought through who for and, and why we're doing it. Yeah, you know it's funny um, that that more theoretical one I think for me is actually um, the fundamental one uh, because the technology you know it, it'll be what it is on the day. 
you know, there's, we wake up every morning, there's another 3000 tech and data solutions out there on the market. Mm. Um, but, but this idea of what the city of the future might look like, you know, what, what is the foresighting, the, the scenario creation for our cities based on certain circumstances? You know, from a technology perspective, there's no shortage of, you know, flying cars and mm. talking watches. And, you know, we've always been plagued with this, this image that the smart cities agenda is, you know, it's the cities of the future and everything's connected and everything's tech. And, you know, at the end of the day, smart cities are, they're just, you know, they're cities, you know, um, so, but, but sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they're over-imagined, you know, mm. over-imagined and um, uh, if anything cause more angst than sort of excitement or opportunity. Um, but, 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 but on, just on this issue as well, in terms of future and, and foresight, our, probably our last question now, Kieran, um, the recent of bushfire events, um, but of course also you know, we're in the thick of COVID-19 right now. Um, do, 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 these, do these events change what resilience means or what it might look like in the future, do you think? Oh, look, this is, this is one of those ones where um, I'll listen to this back in a year's time and feel like a right <laughs> mug, no matter what I say, really. I feel like it's a bit of a stitch up almost, but uh, no, not, <laughs> not at all. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, I think every time there's something this significant happens, it's going to change uh, the discourse. I think if you look at what the bushfires have already done to resilience discourse in Australia, um, there's a heck of a lot more uh, meetings now that I, that I attend that use the term build back better mm. than ever did before in Australia. And, you know, that's been a, been, a, been a term, you know, that's driven by the Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction. That's pretty commonplace in, in many other parts of the world, but we'd never really uh, used it here before. That's not to say there weren't many, many organisations and, and proponents of, of trying to make sure we do not repeat the mistakes of the past when we, when we build back after a disaster, but it's become much more of a rallying call now. And I can only imagine that given the, the sheer kind of breadth and, and depth of the impacts of, of COVID-19 that we're going to to see possibly some even more fundamental changes in the way we think about this. And, you know, if I, if I were going to, to, you know, speculate, I'd say a lot of them might be around how we think about our supply chains and how mm. we think about our, our interconnectivity um, with other nations. And, and you know, um, maybe they won't be quite as often, you know, in these times of, of shock. I know immediately after September 11, there were people wondering if we ever fly in planes again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we certainly did, mm. but, um, but I, I think it's, it's fair to suspect that, um, there'll be a lot of, a lot of, um, soul searching during and after COVID-19 that'll, that'll change the way we, we approach this discussion. If we're having this in a year's time, we may well be talking about very different things. Well, look, indeed, I think, uh, I think even in a month, if we were to sort of re redo this conversation, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if things were fundamentally different again. And, and maybe we, we pick up a conversation uh, in the near future to check in again. But for now, uh, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us on the on the Chronicles. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating to sort of play with this idea of um, smart cities and the, the alignment or interconnectedness with resilience. It's, it's, it's been a really uh, interesting conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks, Adam. That was lots of fun. 
so for our listeners, that was Kieran Power, National Lead for Resilience and Climate Adaptation uh, at WSP. Uh, for our listeners that aren't subscribing to the Chronicles, you can do so. Head to uh, the place by which you go and uh, consume all your podcasts. We will be there. You can also head to the website where all our episodes uh, are listed and accessible. Uh, that website is smartcitieschronicles.com. You can also send us an email. Uh, you can get us at chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host of The Chronicles. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Have a great day.